our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. And so essentially it's sort of our maladaptive uh, uh, coping strategies of, of sort of fortifying the projection of our own ego mythology. Yeah. And, uh, and I think if you, you really dig into the teaching, if you really work with the tool, it, it actually helps you begin to tell yourself the truth, which is, is painful, which can be, can be um, devastating to the ego, which is a severe mercy. But uh, it's really the only way, I think, forward for, for all of us. Hey, everybody. My name is Tom Bushlack, and thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Episode 5 of Contemplate This, Conversations on Contemplation and Compassion. This interview is with Chris Hewerts, a founding member of Gravity Center in Omaha, Nebraska, along with his wife, Felina Hewerts, who was interviewed in episode four of this podcast. Chris has just published a book called The Sacred Enneagram, Finding Your Unique Path to Spiritual Growth, which is selling like hotcakes and getting rave reviews. If you've been listening to previous episodes, this one is a little bit different, especially if you're not familiar with the Enneagram. Personally, I've used the Enneagram as part of my spiritual toolbox of contemplative practices and awakening for a couple of decades and have found it to be incredibly helpful. I have to admit that Chris has taken me to entirely new levels of understanding for approaching and working with the Enneagram and a really deeply embodied way of using this ancient tool and the wisdom that it contains. In fact, I want to share a quick personal story with you that happened to me after recording this interview with Chris. As you'll hear in the interview, my typology on the Enneagram system tends towards the one, which is also sometimes called the perfectionist. Over the years, the Enneagram has helped me to identify that my core fear is that I'm somehow deeply flawed or imperfect, and because of that, therefore, unlovable or unworthy of love. But the deeper truth, the one that holds the path to integration and healing and divine union for the one, is to accept myself as good and whole and lovable not in spite of, but precisely because of my flaws and imperfections. Well, after doing this interview with Chris, I had this wild dream last night in which I really believed this core truth of being deeply whole and loved. I could feel the sense that God in the entire universe was holding me in that truth, and I was accepting it to the point that I felt like I was mirroring it back to myself. In the dream, this wasn't really so much like a thought in my head as it was a felt truth, one that I felt in my body. It was so real that it seemed to occur in this liminal space between dreaming and wakefulness, to the point that when I first woke up this morning, I legitimately couldn't remember if it really occurred while I was sleeping in a dream or if it was something that happened like previously in the day before. I share this because Chris talks about how there's a core truth that he calls the holy idea of each of the nine types. He also calls these truths psychocatalyzers for awakening. What a cool way of putting it, psychocatalyzers for awakening. Chris's wisdom and compassion are so palpable 
that I really think our discussion became kind of this mini psycho catalyzer that knocked something loose in my psyche or my soul where I could allow that holy idea of being imperfectly whole to sink in at a deeper level. If you're not familiar with the Enneagram, I have two suggestions. First, I asked Chris to give a quick rundown of the nine different energies or types uh, and their path to awakening and spiritual growth, which he did from memory without notes in about seven minutes, which in and of itself is impressive. It was so helpful that I actually broke this out into a separate recording and I've posted it as a bonus track in Contemplate This podcast. If you're coming at the Enneagram totally cold, you might want to listen to that recording first. I've also posted some additional resources about the Enneagram on the show notes page, where you can see the Enneagram symbol and the nine typologies with the descriptive titles used by Rizzo and Hudson from the Enneagram Institute. So you can head on over to thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode five. That's episode the number five. thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode five to check out those resources. Second, Chris is a master of this process-based understanding of working with the Enneagram. So I'd recommend just taking it all in. He covers a lot of ground and moves fairly quickly, and it can feel like a lot to take in at some points. So if something, an idea or a concept or something he says is going over your head or you just missed it, I really encourage you to hang in there because there are some gems related to contemplative practice and awakening to compassion in here. And hey, you can always go back and listen to the podcast again if you need to. Before we jump in, I want to share my gratitude with all of you for the way the podcast is growing. We're only on episode five, but it's already uh, growing pretty well. Each week we have more and more downloads, and of course you can subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or you can just go to the main site, which is thomasjbushlack.com forward slash contemplate dash this. thomasjbushlack.com forward slash slash contemplate dash this. If you love the wisdom contained in these interviews, I have just two quick requests. First, please help spread the word on social media. In fact, you can find social sharing buttons right on the main website. And second, I really need your help with writing reviews on iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, especially iTunes. Those reviews really help the podcast to get more exposure out in the world of podcasts and iTunes in particular. So if you can take a minute and write a review, I would be very grateful. And if you can do either of those things, posting and sharing on social media or posting a review, I'm deeply grateful. And of course, you can always make a secure donation online to support the podcast on the website as well. Okay, with those opening remarks, let's get right into this interview with Chris Hewitt. All right, Chris. Well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, why don't you start by giving us a little introduction to yourself and your background, and then I'll, I'll ask you after that for a elevator pitch on the Enneagram for folks who don't know. Sure. Well, I appreciate you having me. Um, I um, live here in Omaha, Nebraska, but um, I'm not here a lot. I'm on about um, probably 110 to 130 flight segments a year. Jeez. So, uh, on the road quite a bit. Um, when I am here, 
um, my wife, Felina, and I run this little center for contemplative activism called Gravity, where we uh, essentially are just trying to help people who help people. So if you are an individual who believes that um, building a better world needs a, to, to be rooted in, in, in your spirituality, then, then the, the work that we do is essentially facilitating and accompanying the introduction of mindfulness, meditation, and, and contemplative practices to support that. And that um, came out of 20 years of international humanitarian work. We, we, we led a, an organization that had projects all over the world, primarily focusing on women and kids who had been trafficked into the commercial sex industry. And what we saw was really good people burning out and uh, really good people doing beautiful work at their own expense. Um, happened to, to me, caught up to, 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 to myself in, in some pretty, pretty harmful and, 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 and painful ways. So when we hit the reset almost six years ago and, and launched this little center, we, we weren't sure that we'd have a whole lot of work, but man, we've, we've never been, been busier. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. And a lot of the listeners who listened to Philena's podcast last time, uh, probably heard a lot of that story. So, um, so part of, part of what, uh, we want to discuss is your new book on the Enneagram. And I think some people listening, are going to be familiar with the Enneagram and some might not. And so can you give us like a little primer on, on what it is and then we can start getting into the meat, the meat of your, your book and then how it relates to the contemplative life. Sure. So, so in 2018, um, the Enneagram has, has largely been framed in, in one of the layers of its sort of tradition or its teaching, which is specifically um, called the Enneagram of personality. And so in 2018, the Enneagram is used to essentially describe and, 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 and sort of give shape to, um, let's say, the nine um, observable human character structure archetypes. But, but my sense is that it, there's a lot more going on than simply that. Um, and actually, when you look at the Enneagram of personality, my sense is that the Enneagram shows us our ego set of coping addictions that we've wrapped up around a childhood wound so that we don't have to tell ourselves the truth about who we really are. And so essentially it's sort of our maladaptive, uh, uh, coping strategies of, of sort of fortifying the projection of our own ego mythology. Yeah. And, uh, and I think if you, you really dig into the teaching, if you really work with the tool, it, it actually helps you begin to tell yourself the truth, which is, is painful, which can be, can be, um, devastating to the ego, which is a severe mercy. But uh, it's really the only way, I think, forward for, for all of us. Yeah. So I was introduced to the Enneagram by a spiritual director in college right around the same time I got into Centering Prayer and Lexio Divina, Contemplative Prayer. So it's something I've worked with. And I'm familiar kind of through Rizzo Hudson, their work and their book um, that introduces the different typologies. And I'm guessing that many people who do maybe have some familiarity with it, know it as a personality typology, and then kind of maybe get into the, the spirituality of it. Um, so could you say a little bit more about kind of the relationship between those typologies? Um, and then what, what you see is that deeper work? Yeah, so, so the thing that's really interesting about one of the things that's really interesting about the Enneagram is, is, is this is a teaching that may be 1000s and 1000s of years old, right? I mean, they, they, they say that um, there may be evidence of this 6,000 years ago in ancient Egypt, um, 4,000 years ago in um, prehistoric Korea, 2,000 years ago in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's, 
you know, evidence that the Greek mathematicians claim this. Michael Goldberg actually says that in Odysseus's 10-year journey home after the Trojan Wars, right? This is Homer's yeah. book, The Odyssey, that the nine stops that he makes, the nine islands and countries that he visits are actually the Enneagram types um, counterclockwise around the circle starting at point two. Wow. Um, I've never heard that before. Um, yeah, there's really great theories out there. Like, so there's, um, of course, the the mystics of of all the great world religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, um, all want to claim this. I did a retreat in Cambodia years ago, and it was um, with a bunch of folks who grew up Buddhist. And, and one of the, the young women came up to me afterwards and said, we have this, we have this in folk Buddhism. <laughs> the thing is, is it's, it, the history is amazing, but in terms of the possibility of this having centuries, if not millennia, of, of background, we're really only working with the Enneagram of personality for 40 or 50 years. Yeah. So when it was reintroduced, let's say 101 or 102 years ago by this Turkish-Armenian man, George Gurdjieff, he didn't introduce it as a personality teaching. He introduced it as sort of a, a process tool to understand any perfect system. And in fact, yeah. Gurdjieff said, if you understand the Enneagram, it renders libraries useless. That if you <laughs> sat in the desert abandoned and just drew this symbol in the sand over and over again, you could see within it everything that's been taught and everything that could be learned. Hmm. So, uh, and so that's what's so, so it's so fascinating that it's been sort of over identified as a typology teaching. Yeah. But um, you know, there's so, so much, there's so much more behind it. So would you, is it fair to say from what I'm hearing you say that the, the sort of contemporary fascination with the Enneagram has been filtered through a kind of modern psychological typology for, yeah, for sure really flavored it in a particular way. Yeah. And I, and I would say specifically that's why it's often called a psycho spiritual character structure tool mm -hmm. because in, you know, the early seventies, um, the sort of grandfather of Enneagram types, this uh, gestalt psychotherapist named Claudio Naranjo started to build out, the character structure around um, his his psychological understanding of human nature. Some of his students happened to be Jesuits, um, and it was in the the 80s that they sort of broke these confidentiality clauses with Ron Ho, said, you can't teach this, you're not allowed to teach this until I give you permission. But but this one particular priest couldn't sort of contain himself, and so he started to share it with his, his brothers at Loyola there in Chicago, and they're the ones who really let it loose into the West. And so you have the psychological and this Ignatian spirituality bracketing around a teaching. And I think that's why very specifically it's, you know, maybe unintentionally called psycho spiritual character structure tool, but it, it's bringing that psychological framework with that Ignatian spirituality underpinning. But it's even more than that because the, the somatic aspect that that sort of drove it and especially when Gurdjieff was introducing it um is is still largely missing huh okay I got uh, about 10 million questions here I'm trying not to lose track of them but um I did an interview one of the earlier podcasts with Cynthia Berjolt and she's very influenced by Gurdjieff um and this and she talks specifically about the embodied somatic aspect of practice so um what is what is how can you say a little bit more about how Gurdjieff was influential in really highlighting that embodied aspect? Well, so so Gurdjieff really sort of taught that what he understood the process enneagram 
um, through the, the three, what we now call intelligent centers. And rather than the instinctive or the gut center, he really called it the moving center. Mm. And, and so that momentum there and the teaching was, was central because Gurdjieff introduced the Enneagram to his students 102 years ago. Um, there was a, a, a large inlaid Enneagram symbol on this ballroom floor at his in- Institute for the Harmonious Development of Humanity. And he taught the Enneagram through dance and movement along the lines of this, this symbol on, on that, in that ballroom. He, he really primarily taught it through, through body work. And, uh, so, you know, like, um, actually in some of my advanced trainings with the Enneagram Institute, actually facilitated by Russ, Russ Hudson, who he mentioned earlier, um, you know, he introduced some of us to some of those Gurdjieffian dances, um, which, you know, it suddenly begins to engage parts of you that you're maybe you weren't even aware were yeah. sort of tethered to the psycho spiritual aspect. And, and I think you see this, you know, like I, I think you see this, this process overlay show up everywhere. I was, I was just talking to Felina the other day because she's finishing up her, her, her new manuscript on contemplative spirituality. And, um, she was talking about this move from mindfulness to heartfulness. Yeah. And um, I sort of said, and you know, the, 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 the continuation of that goes mindfulness to heartfulness to embodiment. And, and when I sort of thought about that as through the lens of the Enneagram, you know, it sort of made me think that maybe in the evolution of our religious consciousness, we, 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 we started with Buddhism as, as really a, a philosophical teaching rooted in mindfulness and, and probably with a lot of Enneagram type five energy, which then prepared us for the sort of heartfulness of, of, of Christianity, which is, you know, really heavy Enneagram type two energy, which I think sort of moved forward or evolved forward into the embodiment of Islam at its best, which really means submission, but it's, it's such a, a viscerally, viscerally, experienced um religious tradition mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot of eight energy there in islam and if you look at that that five two eight flow that's actually the relationalists or the rejection types of the harmony triads so you just see these processes un- unfold i think all over when you you sort of look through the lens of the enneagram as as a as a process teaching wow okay so i want to go into this idea of a process teaching because let me i think for the, for those who might be listening who have some familiarity with the Enneagram, I'm guessing their, their experience is going to be similar to mine, which is kind of be introduced to the system, uh, identify a typology. And I've, I've done a little bit of very unofficial teaching around this myself. And when I, when I do, I usually, I try to talk about it, not in terms of, you know, a a typology that sort of puts you in a box, but an understanding of tendencies and, and behavior patterns that the different, numbers of the typology system can help you understand. Um, but I think like I myself kind of identify as the one tendency, the perfectionist tendency. And, um, so how would you take somebody coming at it with that level of familiarity and kind of, um, I have a feeling you're going to, you're going to break this wide open and, (laughs) but take it into that deeper process part. So if, um, so most people understand it through, through, through personality or, mm-hmm. or type. And so if I, so when I, I try to introduce, um, 
how you can sort of see processes unfold through the Enneagram. And if the energy of type helps you sort of follow that, um, then one of the things that I, 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 I was observing during the last presidential election cycle was this sort of, um, I, I, it's not predictive, but it was the, the final four. I think we could have almost predicted based on what we had done to ourselves in our own sort of American political imagination, right? So my sense is this, if Bill Clinton um, wasn't dominant in type three, at least his administration had a lot of three energy. If George W. Bush wasn't dominant in type six, at least his administration had a lot of six energy. And if Obama wasn't dominant in type nine, at least his administration had a lot of nine energy. And if you can follow that Clinton, Bush, Obama flow between three, six, and nine, that's actually those anchor points or those revolutionary types in integration. And I think we probably could have stayed in that flow and, and done done well with it because those are considered in the, in the harmony triads, um, those are considered the pragmatics, right? Pragmatists. But what happens is, right, three, six, nine, Clinton, Bush, Obama, we get to, to Barack Obama and, and everybody loses their damn minds and they either hero worship the guy or demonize the guy. Yeah. And so they start wavering and, and we started teetering to, to really the right and the left of that point nine. Right. And so to the right and left is point one and point eight. Well, politically to the right of point nine and of Barack Obama in our final four, we had two people who I think really are probably dominant type eight, which was Ted Cruz and, and Donald Trump. And politically to the left of point nine and to Barack Obama, I think we had two folks who are dominant type one, Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. And so I feel like we just did that to ourselves. Like, and I feel like that's sort of what the process Enneagram shows us is the unfolding of, 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 of how life plays itself out. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, so can you say a little bit more about kind of the flow and I'll, what I'll do is I'll post uh, the image of the Enneagram with the kind of directional arrows and maybe you can actually point to one that you like um, that I'll put up so people can kind of follow along because um, can you explain like for myself, that whole idea of kind of um, the directions of integration and disintegration has been really helpful. Like mm. as a one, I know that if I start um, kind of moving into like self self-loathing and um, perseverating on my, on woe is me that I'm kind of moving towards the unhealthy side of the four. Um, am I doing that right? Yeah. And, and then, but I know that when I'm healthy, that I move towards kind of the healthy energies of the seven, the playful, the doing things because they're fun and, and exploratory. Um, so can you say a little bit about the, the ways in which those, that process and that flow works in the Enneagram? Yeah. So, so actually the, the, well, there's, I, I mean, and if I just said so that totally many, wrong, just tell me. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the thing. There's so many theories here um, on what these lines between the numbers um, suggest or teach or say. So one of the the really interesting theories, again, um, to reference Michael Goldberg, is is this notion that um that actually we're 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 located. Let's say our our sense of self, our psyche, our essence, our ego, maybe more accurately on those lines between the numbers than the numbers themselves, that mm. the numbers aren't sort of static landing points. But, you know, even with this Gurdjieffian notion that this is in flow and in flux, that we sort of live on those lines between. So that's that's a fun idea to, to play around with. But in general, I think the, the sort of 
teaching that you're getting at is, is, you know, every point on the Enneagram um, has these, these lines that connect it to two other points somewhere else across the circle. And those are sometimes called your heart point um, and your stress point. They're sometimes called, depending on the, the sort of the school, right? Because there's a Yale and a Harvard and a Princeton and the Enneagram world, the line or path of integration and the path of disintegration. And, and the theories on integration and disintegration, I, I think are, um, you know, hotly debated, which is a little funny. Um, they sometimes say the Enneagram is worse than religion, but then it's like, nope, nothing's worse than religion. Um, but it's pretty, it's pretty territorial with its, its intellectual property and with its ideas. But, you know, one of the theories is that you can reach to the high side of both your heart point and stress site and that you can reach to the low side of both your heart point and stress point so that you can actually access the positives and the negatives of each of those two, those two corresponding numbers. The, the more common theory is sort of what you're, you're, you're suggesting that when I'm centered, when I am, um, moving up, you know, the Enneagram Institute calls sort of the levels of development, the sort of, mm-hmm healthy versions of my type and specifically when you see um people describe a type as as healthy as average or unhealthy that's actually not just sort of arbitrary renderings of a caricature like the Enneagram Institute actually has built out these very I think really well 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 defended sort of nine rung ladders of this sort of psycho-spiritual health that are essentially based on the malformation of your type's basic fear. And as you listen to that basic fear and you move down that ladder, um, you sort of de- diminish and, 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 and malform your basic desire, which also then moves down that ladder with you. So, um, so anyway, sorry. Um, um, so th- anyway, what happens with these passive integration and disintegration is that when you're moving up this ladder, um, you actually become a better version of your type, right? So if you're dominant type one, you actually become a great version of type one um, versus I become my heart point or I become the point on my path of integration. And, and essentially what you're doing is you're borrowing the positive traits, mm-hmm. let's say of type type seven. Now, when you are falling down that ladder, that nine rung ladder of psycho spiritual health, um, what happens in disintegration is I don't get fussy and entitled and particular and diva esque and self absorbed like an unhealthy person dominant type four. But what you do is you reach out and grab some of the specifically low level manipulation tactics of somebody in type four to stop your own fall down that ladder. Mm. So I sort of describe it like this. When you're a little girl or a little boy and you're climbing up a tree and you slip and fall, well, if you land on the ground, you're going to break your back or break your arm. So what do you do? Well, your unconscious self-survival instinct is to reach out and grab a branch to stop the fall. Right. And I actually think that's what disintegration is. That when you are losing your way at the, the low levels of your psycho-spiritual health, you have to stop yourself somehow. And so you stop yourself by grabbing that, that stress points manipulation tactics as a way of self-observing your, un, your own unraveling. Now, what that, that implies then is that your sort of ability to self-observe your own disintegration has been, has been honed and developed because when you're not well, that's the worst time to try to self-observe. 
right. to be falling. Right? Yeah. So. Well, that, that brings up an interesting point of connection to contemplative practices that could be anything from basic mindfulness to contemplative prayer or meditation, something like that. So um, can you say a little bit about how you see that those kinds of practices as integrating with working with the, the energies and typologies of the Enneagram. Right. So, so that was the, the, the work that I spent a few years trying to, to sort of tease out that eventually became the, the sacred Enneagram, um, the book and, and then the workshops that we do around it. Um, you know, my sense is this, that, you know, one of the things that, that Russ Hudson, um, one of my teachers and, 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 and the author that you had mentioned earlier, suggests is that the Enneagram is less about nine types of people and more about nine paths to God. And and so if that's actually true, then, then what are those paths of God paths to God look like? Mm-hmm. And, and my sense here is that um, if you look at your, 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 your dominant type, right. And you align it with your, your Enneagram types intelligent center, right? So the eights, nines, and ones are in the body or the gut center. These are the instinctive types. The twos, threes, and fours are in the heart or the feeling center. These are the sort of emotionally intelligent and perceptive types. And then the five, six, and sevens are in the head or, or the thinking center. These are the, 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 the cerebral mind types. That that actually is, is the first and most important teaching of the Enneagram of personality. And, and I do believe this, that if you really can find fluency in the intelligence centers, you really understand the whole system. Mm. And, and, and that fluency helps in, in a, lot of, a lot of practical ways, actually. I think if you, you learn your intelligence center's most accessible emotion, you, you begin to, to sort of watch um, how you're, you're controlled by those. If you are able to observe your intelligence center's sort of fundamental need, if that's for the, the, the body types control, if that's for the heart types comparisons and connections, if that's for the head types competencies, you, you see how this drives your vocational fidelity, the, the satisfaction or dissatisfaction in your relationships, your, your own relationship with the self. But if you can also learn to develop fluency in your instincts, your feelings, or your thoughts, that's actually where you practice your best discernment. And yeah. so, so it's important, right? Your intelligence centers are important. Yeah. Well, well, I think that solitude, silence, and stillness as the sort of postures of how we frame our contemplative practices actually trigger your intelligent center's most accessible emotion, right? So for the gut types, that's frustration. For the heart types, that's, that's guilt. For the head types, that's, that's anxiety. And I actually think to help um, de-escalate the control that these accessible emotions have on us requires that we give ourselves um, intentionally and voluntarily to these postures of solitude, silence, and stillness. So I, I actually think that this this proves itself out, but I actually think for the body type, stillness is, is, is the dominant posture that becomes the overcorrection to what's out of control for types eight, nine, and one, right? Eights are fighting for justice. Nines are arbitrating. Ones are trying to fix themselves in a world, and it's just like, stop. <laughs> Twos, threes, and fours, I think it's solitude. And, and five, six, and sevens, I, I think it's, it's silence. And, um, and I think when you bring those contemplative postures into your intelligent centers, man, I, I really, really, really believe that's when your, your inner work um, really starts to become incredibly transformational. Wow. Okay. That, that resonates really deeply with my own 
experience over the last couple decades um, of being in that gut center. Uh, okay, so let me see if you can do this. Uh, if somebody is kind of totally lost and not sure where to enter into this conversation, um, can you do a quick rundown of like the nine energies without, you know, yeah, sure, here sure. forever? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, you know, the, the Enneagram Institute and then the Enneagram and the narrative tradition have given sort of names or titles to each of the nine types. And, and I generally don't use those because I think they describe, um, social functions and roles more than essence. And, and I think the Enneagram is about excavating essence actually. Yeah. But, um, but it, they're, they are a helpful rhetorical device for, for trying to, I guess, understand the Enneagram types if, if this is new to you. And I, I, just to add real quick, I think it's also really helpful if that whole concept of a difference between sort of an, an ego constructed self and true essence is, is not something that somebody's versed in the, the, the typologies can be helpful for, as a starting place to kind of introduce that idea and break that open. Yes. And that's, um, and that's the bummer because, you know, excavating essence is dirty work. It's like yeah. unearthed buried treasure. Your hands are going to get dirty. And uh, and it sounds romantic and it sounds idyllic, but it's like, no, actually, the deeper you dig down in there, you, you move past the soft soil into some sort of sticky, yucky, mucky stuff into sort of nearly petrified, essentially bullshit manure. And then down below that are the, all the stones and rocks of what's kept your essence trapped. Yeah. So it's, it's difficult. Um, yeah. but to, to, to sort of run around the, the color wheel of, of the Enneagram. And I say color wheel because you, you may find that two or three of these numbers actually feel like you. And it's likely that the two or three numbers that feel like you are beside each other. And that's because they do sort of blend into each other. Right. And that's what are called your wings, the numbers on either side of you. Well, um, Type one is sometimes called the perfectionist or the reformer. This is um, really in the early days, um, the Jesuits and, and, and then the Catholic communities that, that, that disseminated the teaching used sort of nine fundamental needs. And that's how I, I also learned this. Type one is the, the need to be perfect, right? And these people are principled and hold high standards. Their, their, their basic fear, which is, is really tragic, is that they're somehow inherently flawed or corrupt, but they're the best people we know. Um, they're, they're, they're sort of caricatured as fussy and grumpy and angry and, and, and critical, but man, that's just the sort of leftovers of, of them beating themselves up all day long for, for failing to live into the own, their own sort of idealized and unrealistic standards for perfection. And, mm. and so the pain for the one is, is really that they're not good enough, but, but they're the best. They're the best people in, in our lives. Type two, this is the sometimes called the helper, the giver. This is the need to be needed. Um, this is the, the really nurturing embrace of the Enneagram. This is the person who knows your needs before you know them. Um, this is the person who gives himself away at their own expense. And so the caricature of pride is, is an unfortunate one because it's really more self-abnegation. It's really sort of the giving tree of the Enneagram. Just take this, take this, take this. And I'm going to convince myself that I'm happy. But at the end of the day, when I've given it all away, and I'm left with myself, I'm actually deeply sad. And, uh, and so the fear there is, is, is really more along the lines of not being loved for who they are because they, they love everyone else so well. Type three is sometimes called the, the performer or the achiever. This is the need to succeed. And this is the empty heart of the Enneagram. This is the person who mistakes 
recognition and, and affirmation, affirmation as love. And so they, they chase that sort of external validation their whole lives to be seen rather than, than pressing into their own true value, recognizing it and seeing themselves for who they are. Um, they're, they're, they're sometimes quietly competitive. Um, these people will accomplish quite a bit and that drive really comes from truthfully, um, an ache, an ache to, to love and an ache to, to be loved. Type four is the, um, the individualist or, or sometimes the romantic. Um, this is the, the need to be unique and, and fours are painfully misunderstood. And, 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 and really, I think the most, um, sort of mistreated in all the Enneagram literature. Uh, this is the person who's afraid that they don't have significance, that they don't have a sense of, of who they are, or where they came from. And so what they do is they, they see significance everywhere else. And, and they, they live into their own frustration by sort of romanticizing what they idealize. And, and that creates this, this trap of, of, of longing that, that, that then can become intensified and, and really lead to their, um, their their uh, their ability to express things through through aesthetics, through words, through art, through music, and 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 and, and the beauty that they see, the significance that they draw out is 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 wasted just on them. They they can't see it for themselves, and so that's a, a real pain. Type five is is the observer or the investigator, sometimes called the theorist or the analyst, and this is the need to understand. And these folks live in their head and. And they retreat into their their mind palace, as my friend Seth Hain calls it, uh, so that they can can suss out every question and get to the bottom of it. And and really, that's their social gift, and that's how they love us is is uncovering the essence of all things. Type six is the loyalist or the skeptic. This is the need to be secure, and these are the great threat forecasters. These people are contingency planners. They they they, they sadly doubt themselves, second guess themselves, and. And they double down on that as a way of trying to protect everyone else by creating stability and security in our lives. And, and, and so they're incredible friends. They're, they're, they're incredibly courageous when they tap into that. Um, and, and really, their, their gift is, is faith. Type 7 is the enthusiast. This is the need to avoid pain. These folks are ridiculous. They're, 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 they're winsome. They're charming. They're playful. They, they, they trick us because... We think they're, they're heart center, but they actually are one of the two anomalies of the Enneagram. They don't have a direct connection to that, that feeling center. Um, and so they live up in their heads and, and, and it's painful for them to be present. And so this is their constant distraction that becomes their addiction, uh, anticipation, thinking about what's next, planning, anticipating, um, ensuring that options, opportunities and access to freedoms are, are never limited sort of drives them. And then uh, type eight, it's called the challenger. This is the need to be against. These are um, folks who, who hate bullies, but they're the biggest bully. They um, are not as tough as they come across because they're really trying to, to protect the, their inner child from, from being exposed. But they are as mean. Um, they're painfully afraid of not being in control. So they exert control through really confrontation and, 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 and serve as great contrarians for the good and the bad. Um, and then type nine is called sometimes called the mediator or the peacemaker. And this is the need to avoid. And as kids, 
these folks somehow felt that they needed to minimize and repress what was important to them as an act of love so that they could put the needs of their, 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 their imperfect. And we all had imperfect early holding environments, but, but the imperfections of their early holding environments, they were sensitive to what the needs and unmet needs were. And then centering those began to lose themselves. And so in their adult lives, their, their, their basic fears of this inner fragmentation. So what they're trying to do is stitch the external world together by, by arbitrating and, and harmonizing it as a, as a proxy battle of what they're not doing inside. Um, they, they're very understanding, um, incredible, um, they, incredible referees of, 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 of in high stakes situations. And, and they can really, really, um, bring the energy down when things escalate. But, there's this, this sense of lostness within themselves that once is activated, their, their, their gift is, is love and action and, and, and nothing and no one can stop them, right? Mm. So that's a quick sort of runaround. Yeah, that, I might have to edit that into its own little snippet because that was pretty awesome <laughs> as a, just a quick intro. So if you're, I don't know if you'll be willing to do this, but would you kind of take us through your own work in the Enneagram and... and energy and how it's we've I think we've done a great job of laying out some of the the conceptual side of things but um like what what got you into it and how is that how have you felt that that move towards essence and kind of letting go of of what stands in the way of that and to what to whatever extent you're willing to talk about some of the clay and rocks and roots that you had to dig through (laughs) sure so I um so I learned the Enneagram about 20 years ago in the slums of Cambodia um, from a, a friend who who's originally from New Zealand, but married a, a, a Cambodian woman who was actually a, a survivor of the Khmer Rouge genocide. She uh, was a refugee who, who went to New Zealand. Um, and after um, Nay married Craig, the two of them moved back and have, have really worked with really, really underserved um, folks suffering in some, some pretty, pretty, uh, pretty deplorable situations and, and really intense poverty there in Phnom Penh. Anyway, when he introduced this to me, I, I, I just, of course was like, yeah, this is made up. I don't believe this. Like I just <laughs> pushed back really hard and mm-hmm. sort of wanted to fight him on it. Um, but I couldn't sort of get it out of my head. And, uh, when I, I came back to the States, I, I got online and I found every free test that I could take. I, I, I built out this ridiculous, Excel spreadsheet with all the results, averaged, weighted. I sent it back to him and he was just like, mate, you're doing this wrong. And, uh, I think he, he had a sense of my type. Um, because in a sense, our types are always showing. Yeah. And, uh, he goes, let me ask you about how you related to your mother. And, and it really wasn't a question. I mean, he, he really was, I think, sort of <laughs> gently coming in from the side saying, look, um, I think you're probably dominant in type eight. And, you know, type eight folks um, have this rejection relationship with their nurturing caregiver. As little kids, they felt like that that nurturing energy was an attempt to smother. And because the eight has this this need to be in control, the eight rejected it. And sure enough, man, I was just whipped. I was just devastated. I was just like, man, is it that obvious? Because you know, my, my mom was 19 when she had me, um, was the firstborn. All, all she, and I think my mom's dominant in type two. All she wanted to do was love me. And she was incredible and, and, and has always been incredible. But even that energy showing up in, in, in my infancy and in my, my, my early childhood, 
and not being able to observe it and not being able to manage it caused this resistance to that kind of of affectionate care. And 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 if you're dominant type eight, you know this that that you spend most of your life unable to to ap- adequately and appropriately self nurture that. It's the nurturing people in your life that you sometimes sort of collect or let them do that for you, but only to an extent because eights are in their bodies. They're the instinctive type. They don't know what to, to they often don't know what to do with their feelings. And, and even though they might come across as overly emotional, it's less emotions and it's more impassioned. And, and, and in that impassioned resistance to what, what's good for them, um, they double down on this this protective stance. So Craig sort of outed that real quick, and I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, so I got at it, and we used it a little bit in our former community. Um, but, you know, several years ago, I started to realize that the, the closer you get to somebody's um, um, sort of so-called childhood wounds, um, the, the more gentle you have to be, the more nuanced and understanding with the teaching you have to be. And, and look, sometimes pastoral counseling is fine, but sometimes you need a psychotherapist and, and there's a real difference. So I, I fortunately was able to start uh, studying with Father Richard Rohr, um, who's on our board and, 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 and is really a, a mentor and a, and a dear friend. Um, and then I began to, to train with some of the, 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 the world's great living masters of this, of this teaching. And, uh, and it's been incredible, you know, on one hand, when people come across the Enneagram, it's like, it it makes sense. And like, and on one hand, like all you have to do is learn a little bit of the energies of the nine types to be the most interesting person at a dinner party. (laughs) But essentially you're just weaponizing the teaching at that point. Um, I, I think, I think what's 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 less common is 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 the person who really takes the teaching inward and 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 allows it to sort of be the tools um that are are utilized in this excavation of essence. And so so that's been I mean honestly that's been the great and terrifying um path of the teaching even for me, right? Um each enneagram type has what Oscar Chasso called a holy idea, right? And the holy idea, um, he called a psycho catalyzer. And, um, and so one of the, the, the students of Claudio Naranjo back in Berkeley in Naranjo's backyard Enneagram classes in the early seventies, a man named Hamid Ali, who's, who writes under H a Almas and, 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 he started what's called the diamond approach and it's a way of working with the energy of the Enneagram's holy ideas as these psycho catalyzers for sort of awakening. So for me, right, for, 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 for type eight, the holy idea is, is holy truth, right? And, and if this is what can, can really become sort of the mental clarity of how I see myself in the world, then what that begins to do is it makes a path forward for what my Enneagram types virtue is. And, and, and the Enneagram virtues really are the emotional objectivity that supports this mental clarity of a holy idea. And, and my virtue is innocence. So when I can actually tell myself the truth about my own, you know, my, my own um, 
habits, my own addictions, my own self-destructive tendencies and behaviors, what, what I'm beginning to do is chip away at everything that's hiding my innocence from myself. Mm. I can get to my innocence and I can begin to, to see what actually within me is good and true and beautiful, what is pure, what is naive, what is um, unblemished, and allow that to sort of motivate then what I'm compelled to do professionally, vocationally, in my relationships, in my community, um, it, it, really, it really centers things. Problem is, is, I don't want to tell myself the truth. I'd rather live in an illusion. It's, it's right. a lot easier, you know? So, so it's hard. And I think for all of us, it's hard. It's hard in nine different ways. <laughs> right. Um, I think that's, well, thank you. That was um, really a, a thoughtful reflection um, on your own experience. And, why do you think that's so hard? I mean, I know it in my own way and you just told it in your own story. Um, because on the one hand, I think we all have this, this deep, deep, deep desire to be free from those negative, those fears that, that drive us. Um, you know, if you want to put it in, in theological terms, it is that desire to be on the path to union, union with God or however you conceive that. Um, so that's like a fundamental part of the human condition. But then, man, it's so hard to get there. But why do you think it is? Why do you think we have both this like deep desire, but then it's just like the scariest possible thing you could possibly do? Yeah, I, I, because I do think it's it's easier to live in, in our illusions. You know, like um, I think waking up like – especially early in the morning is, is hard for everyone, right? That's why we have to turn our alarm clocks up so loud. Um, those first few moments of sort of coming out of a deep sleep into sort of awareness are, 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 are awkward, right? We'd rather go back to sleep, especially when we're tired. And I think a lot of us are tired from resisting the truth. And so we, 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 we prefer to opt for um, the dreamlike state of what makes life seem more interesting. And, 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 you know, I use a, the analogy of the Wizard of Oz throughout the book and, and in my workshops because, you know, it, it, it shows us how we live, right? If you remember the film, The Wizard of Oz, before Dorothy gets knocked out cold in the storm, everything's sort of black and white. And that's what life really feels like, mundane, monotonous, ordinary, undramatic. So we create these colorful, magical illusions that we want to be more real than than what's what's typically real and that's you know that's exposed in in in, in how we brand our, our our sense of self that's projected through social media platforms or whatever it's like we we have these very carefully curated lives on instagram and twitter and it's like that's that's not who we are that's that's who we want to be seen as and we want to see ourselves as that well i i think we we spend so much time trying to stay asleep that we make it harder to wake up and I think when we start to wake up, of course, it's, it's not easy work. It's slow work. It's patient work. But, but, but there's no better way to live. The trick is we look at everyone else and we think, oh, wouldn't that be great if you were woke? You woke up. You were awakened. And we look at everybody else's holy ideas and virtues and we're like, oh, of course, that's you. And of course, that's easy work. And what, why wouldn't you want to be that? But when you really press into your own, you see what it costs because somebody has to pay for it. And so if you're not paying for it by, by, by giving yourself to the hard work of waking up, then everyone else around you and yourself included pays for it 
in, in sort of the converse or the negative space of, of its, of its malformation of, of your sense of self and, and its hiding of your true self. And how would you describe that pain for it? I mean, my thought is kind of in regards to you end up, you end up sort of projecting your fear onto others and that that's a root of violence and discord. Um, but how, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. For but. sure. Well, I mean, you know, for, so if you're dominant type one, like your, your holy idea is holy perfection and, and your virtue is serenity. And, and, and really what, what's amazing about ones who, who can sort of align that is this, that, that the, the notion of holy perfection is that you are perfectly flawed, that, that even what is broken and wrong with you is, is right. Mm-hmm. And that it is your flaws that make you beautiful. Well, man, if ones could align with that serenity, that peacefulness of their perfectly flawed sense of self, that would actually give the rest of us more permission to be okay with our flaws. But if the the, the gatekeepers of perfection um, idealize perfection and and they are as perfect as anybody's going to be, then the rest of us are screwed. Like. So we, we need to do this for ourselves clearly, but we need to do this for each other, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and it's funny to, to ask somebody who's dominant type one, what's beautiful about your flaws. But man, when you start to sort of really get beyond that question to what is truly beautiful about what is flawed in you, that's what's perfect in you is, is there is something beautiful in, in your humanity that it's this, this notion of you sort of climbing up on a pedestal. Um, it's these unattainable self-perfection projects that a lot of folks who are dominant type one have that, that actually make it harder for you to find that peace. Mm-hmm. So this is also why I think the Enneagram is, 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 is really a, a teaching for community because each of us bring one of nine gifts forward that the world needs to see embodied. And uh, you're, I, you know, I believe you're born your type because I believe that you're born to, to, to bear witness, to bear fruit, to bring these gifts out. And if, you know, you come from a historic Christian faith tradition and you need to rub a little bit of Bible on the Enneagram to, to make this okay, well, this then could be simply the nine fruit of the spirit. This simply could be the nine active energies of the nine beatitudes. I mean, it shows up even in scripture and it shows us what what, what we can become together when we, yeah. when we access and align with these gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to decide between two questions right now, but one of them that I wanted to touch on that I think lends itself right now is, um, and I, I, I'm sure you've had this challenge thrown at you, particularly from people coming out of the Christian tradition that would say, this is, at best, not Christian, and at worst, sort of anti-Christian. And maybe there are, are arguments from other traditions that would say the same thing. Um, so I just, I'm curious how you respond to that. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, when I when I first came across this, and 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 I started to to look at some of the the materials that were available then, like it, it did weird me out a little bit. I mean. You know, the, the drawing itself looks like two pentagrams having sex. So it's like <laughs> super evil. Um, but then it's like you, you get this interspiritual overlay to it. And I know some people are a little uncomfortable with that. And, um, and that becomes sort of a, a, 
a detriment. And then you start to learn a little bit about some of the, the early teachers and, you know, their connections to esoteric uh, traditions, which I, I think people mistake sort of esoteric teachings and traditions and wisdom schools as, or they, let's say they caricature all of it as sort of the occult. And it's like, then that becomes clearly a red flag, but also clearly unhelpful and inaccurate. My, my sense is this, my sense is um, that the Enneagram, you know, as much as I love the history of this thing, my sense is that it, it probably wasn't discovered, but that it's always been just like any great teaching, just like, it just shows up everywhere because I'm not saying it's it's universally true, but because it it gives or sheds light on observable patterns, right? So like, you know, the law of seven. Well, did somebody make up the law of seven? Well, we, we made up the law of seven as a way of describing how seven and the impression and the imprint of seven sort of gives us a, a, a tangible hinge for what we perceive, right? So we see the seven colors of a rainbow reflect, refracted through light. We hear the seven fundamental tones of an octave. Um, when you play that on the on a keyboard from C to C, you're, you're playing eight notes, but there's only seven unique notes Two between C's, those. Yeah. 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 And, and then you, you measure time through the seven days a week. Um, my sense is the Enneagram just sort of shows us this, this process of, of nine that you know, right now we're, we're using to understand personality. The other thing for, for Christians though, too, is like this. I, I think, um, you know, Richard Rohr is so funny. Like he, one of his recent books was on the Trinity and he has this great little line when he's talking about it, where he says, I can't believe evangelicals actually believe in the doctrine of the Trinity because the word's not on the page anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> and, and I think we're, we have to be a little bit aware of what's in, Instinctive, what's intuitive, and, and what we don't have to actually need to proof text. Look, Christians believe a lot of stuff that's extra biblical, like math, for example, and we don't have a problem with math. So I think we'll be okay. I, I think the Enneagram's sort of finding its way into sort of our Christian consciousness, and I think we'll, we'll be okay. Yeah, thanks. I was curious how you kind of deal with that. Um, the other question I was thinking about a second ago was, you know, the, the sort of tagline for the contemplate this podcast is conversations on contemplation and compassionate social action. Mm. And I'm really struck in listening to you talk. Uh, I hope it comes through in the audio version only just like there's this real compassion and care that you have for the people that you're working with this and, and seeing the ways in which we trap ourselves and, and seeing this as a tool to kind of liberate from that. Um, it, I don't know, can you riff on that a little bit, this idea that when we start a contemplative practice, whether it's using the Enneagram or, or not, that, that that sort of naturally flowers or, or opens up into compassion for both oneself and for others. And maybe how the Enneagram sort of, um, I don't know, maybe oh, the right word is supercharges that or, or, or fuels that process. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I actually think that the Enneagram is a compassionate sketch of possibilities um, of who we can become. And uh, that takes a lot of performance pressure off of us to be rather than to sort of relax into who we already are. Secondly, I'll say this. It was, it was my friends who are dominant in type one that actually taught me compassion 
um, for the Enneagram. You know, it, it's funny, right? Type nine, right? Sits right up there at the top of the circle. And like I said earlier, to the right and the left is type eight and type one. And, and type nine is, is a great mediator because it has to mediate the two energies on either side of it, which are the most immoral type eight and the most overly moral type one. <laughs> and so eights and ones can actually have really great energy or they can actually be, you know, mortal enemies. And for a lot of my life, man, it was a lot of folks who are dominant type one, you know, sort of busting my chops, correcting me, telling me when I was being a little inappropriate or, or, or acting out. And eights, we act out on purpose um, or subconsciously at least. But man, I, I started to, to understand that, you know, like I said earlier, that um, what can seem a little bit critical or fussy or resentful of the type one is, is the overflow of all of that that they're aiming inward and that inner critic that just beats them up all day long, that makes them replay, rethink, relive what they could have said or done differently. And, and if you can't actually extend compassion for, for somebody who's dominant type one, if you can't actually find such sympathy for how hard that must be, then, then, you know, you, you're, you're going to have a hard time extending compassion for yourself. Well, we know this, it's, it's compassion for our sense of self that opens up the compassion for the other. And, and so, man, the Enneagram really became a tool for, for self-compassion. And then it really became, um, I mean, man, that this became sort of a, a waterfall of compassion for, for all the other types. And, and now I, I really can't imagine how hard it must be to be any of these types when you really step back and, and try to, to understand how, how we all suffer in nine different ways, this disconnect from our essence, from our, our essential self, from our, our, our beautiful and good and true nature. Right? So one of the things I like to ask everybody on the podcast is like, what's, what does your daily practice look like? How do you, in, in the language you're using here, like what, how do you tune into that essence? So I, um, I, um, actually try to, um, well, I, I don't try Like uh, I, um, every morning I, I have to start with some, some mindfulness meditations and, uh, and, and it's really been specifically some loving kindness meditations that I think have, have been the most, most impactful for me for, for several months now. Um, you know, loving kindness, a traditional loving kindness, mindfulness practice teaches us, of course, um, gratitude, uh, acceptance, and, and, and then clearly compassion. And I think when I, I start my day with that and I, and I can well that, that compassion up here first and foremost, then, then it really becomes so, so much easier to see it sort of become contagious or, 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 or sort of shared. Um, you know, in, um, in my book, I, I, like I said, with the Intelligence Center, Solitude, Silence, and Stillness, um, you know, somebody who's dominant type A, I, I also try to create this, um, this pause or this intentional stillness to sort of reflect on the present. And so one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do this year is every time I hold a cup of coffee, sort of in, 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 in some of the teachings of some of the great mindfulness and Buddhist teachers, they, they remind us that in every cup of coffee, the, the soil where the coffee plant had been planted is present. The water that fed that plant is there. And then the sunlight, which sort of nurtured that plant is there. And so in every cup here, right, it's the earth, it's, it's, it's the water, it's the atmosphere that, that I am being drawn back towards. And so in the stillness, returning to, to the present, um, I'm also finding that, man, I, 
I can, I can be here. And when I am present to this moment, 100% of all my problems are manageable. Mm. Uh, mm. So that, that commitment to stillness and, and, and trying to slow down is, is, has been tough. And, um, you know, on 130 flights a year, it, it's, it seems even tougher, but, mm. but also necessary. Yeah. Well, yeah, I love coffee. I'm gonna <laughs> <laughs> thanks for that. I'm gonna bring that in when I have my morning cup. Um, yeah, what I, something I'm pick, I'm hearing is you, you talk about these three kind of core practices that uh, for depending on oh, I forget I don't know the language of the enneagram that you're using, but the the different centers, the it's sort of the head, the gut, and the heart, right? Mm-hmm. I, okay, and that for depending on what one, that one of those is going to have a kind of core healing potential, silence, stillness, and solitude. So, I mean, is it fair to say that, that tapping into which of those is, is going to be most helpful for helping you awaken to that essence is like a quantum leap on the, on the path? Well, I, I think it's, I think you'll find if you can align your intelligence center with solitude, silence, or stillness, and, and of course we need them all. But I, right. I think when but you, one might be sort of dominant, depending on your your energy and typology, and that accessing that could could again almost I don't want to use language of efficiency because I don't think they apply in the contemplative life, but but uh, it's going to be easier and feel more natural to to practice in that way. Yeah, my my sense is this: your 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 intelligent center will have a, a stronger affinity with one of these postures, and and, and this posture then will become an over correction to what's out of control in your life. Right. So if you're dominant type two, three or four, you, you like I said earlier, like you you may primarily be connect c- concerned with connections and comparisons. And so you may find yourself constantly surrounded by good people and, and you actually may have um, really good friends in your life, but you still might actually feel profoundly lonely mm. and, and ironically solitude when, when you can, enter into that interior space to be present to yourself of course allows you to become present to the divine but then to those in your life so that you can um make these real connections and 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 sort of face that inner loneliness or what's causing that so i think these these postures as over corrections address what's out of control um or repressed in our senses of self Mm. And, um, yeah, man, I think it, it really, it really drives in the fruits of our inner work. And, and, you know, we talk about this, we talk about our contemplative practices as disciplines, but look, they're not disciplines unless you practice them. <laughs> and, and until they become disciplines, the fruits that they're, they're sort of designed to, 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 to cultivate in us are, are still elusive from us. Yeah. So these postures really are, are creating the, the sort of soil for the fruit to um to sort of find its way find its way out yeah well that that really resonates with me as a one in the gut intelligence center that um when i'm when i'm kind of anxious or more driven and wanting to go and perfect either myself or the world usually both um that it's i have to take it's it's extra hard Mm. on those days for me to cultivate stillness Mm. but then when i do the quality, uh, especially if I do it early in the morning before I get really revved up, um, I think my 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 ability to engage with other people, 
my work, if it's something more kind of personal, like writing or individual, um, all of that just has a different quality to it. And I think is kind of also more effective if that's the right word mm. um, or it's just, there's more of a quality of presence to it mm. that, that really resonates with me quite deeply. And I, mm. um, and that's a way of thinking about the Enneagram that I had never thought about before. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad for that because I, I really do hope that what, what we, we, you know, these ideas that I, I, I worked out and I, and I try to make available in the sacred Enneagram can actually be a practical now what? So I learned this about myself. I, I understand my type. What do I do with it? And how can it really lead to sort of my own spiritual spiritual growth? How do I nurture and nourish this this contemplative aspect or this contemplative edge to my my own journey back home? Um, and and using type is sort of rail for that. So. Yeah. What do you think the ultimate? purposes if you or uh, again purpose might be the wrong word but um we're stuck with our language of the enneagram of working with it like mm. for all the types i, I mean yeah <laughs> I, I mean, it's intentionally a really tough question yeah I, look here's the thing i my 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 sense here is that the enneagram of personality, specifically, like I said, as 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 a, as a layer of a teaching here, is a sacred map to our soul, and um, it, it can be a mirror um, of our true self that we can't see any other way, and and so if that's one of the analogies of it, then how we perceive it will of course inform how we relate to it. Um, and, and actually I think that's true. I think you, you can sort of see how different people are writing about the Enneagram, teaching the Enneagram, framing the Enneagram and, and, and their perspective or their rendering of the teaching specifically is going to show you what they think you or they can or can't do with it. So my sense here is, is, is the deeper you look into this, this mirror, the, 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 the more intensely you give yourself over to the compassionate possibilities seen on the sacred map. I, I think you you can take this to almost any place you need to. Now, I'll, I'll also say this: I don't think everybody has to find the enneagram, or everybody needs to go out there right now and find their type. And like, this right. is it. It's like I think it'll find you when you're ready for it, and I think it'll find you when you need it. Just like any other tool, just like any other practice, just like any exercise, just like any diet, it's it's there for you when when you're ready. Yeah. Um, huh. Cool. All right. I've got a couple like rapid fire questions. I like to throw at everybody on the interview and just kind of fill in the blank. <laughs> so uh, how would you finish the sentence? Contemplation is. Well, contemplation is, is practicing for death. Right. All right. The purpose of contemplation is all about. Oh, so letting go. Right. Which is the only way to death, I guess, huh? Yeah. Can't resist it. It's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Is there a word or a phrase that sort of captures the heart of your contemplative experience or practice? Well, so, I mean, the, the, the shorthand that I pull through the sacred Enneagram for folks who are dominant type A is, is consenting to stillness. And I think that's pretty, pretty accurate for what I need. Mm, cool. Um, 
So do you have any, or what would you say is like your hope or hopes, plural, for the next generation of contemplative practitioners? Hmm. Um, man, that's a great question because uh, I, I think we're, we're surrounded by them, right? We just came off of a, our, 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 our spring retreat where we had 50 people fly, fly out from 20 states and a lot of young people. Every week we host a, a meditation sit here with, with, you know, these gorgeous old retired nuns in their 80s and 90s. But, you know, we get these kids from high school and university coming down. Um, I'd love to see um, meditation, mindfulness, and, and, and contemplative practice become sort of the norm for our, our, our spiritual newer, new, neuroplasticity of, of sort of becoming the new we that we're all longing for. And, and I think it's the next generation of, of sort of mindful, mindful mentors and guides that will, will get us there. Mm. Mm. Okay. Well, I think, uh, I don't know. Do you have any, anything else that you want to say? <laughs> Let us know that I didn't ask you or. That's a lot of fun, man. I, I yeah. love, love these conversations. Um, you know, we're, um, we've, facilitate uh workshops all over um the world you know of course primarily in north america um but if you go to what 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 dot sacred org, you can sort of always find the the hit list of of, of the ones that are sort of upcoming and, and registration links and it'd be great to, to have you or any of your friends or listeners join us for those um i think we're trying to to make this teaching accessible and and really sort of put it in the hands of, of the people so that they can can appeal to sort of practical applications of it for their own spiritual spiritual enrichment. Yeah, that would be awesome. Well, yeah, I, I need to get to Omaha at some point. So now I've, for got, a, sure. now I've got another reason. <laughs> mm, we actually had a few folks from St. Louis up on this past retreat. So. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, thanks. I really appreciate it. I'm going to have to listen to this like five or six times to really soak it all in. Um, but thanks so much for your time. And, uh, and, um, yeah, well, uh, I'll, I'll post some more information where people can find more about you, um, Perfect. on the show notes as well. Thanks a lot. Appreciate yeah. you having me, man. Yeah. Thanks again for listening. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I'd really love your help with writing reviews on iTunes or other podcast hosting sites and with sharing the podcast on social media or just by word of mouth. You can find the show notes and links to Chris's book, more information about Chris and Philena and Gravity Center, as well as additional resources related to the Enneagram on the show notes page, which is at thomasjbushlack.com forward slash episode five. That's the number five. Until next time, I hope you're finding these interviews helpful for your own contemplative practice and awakening to deeper compassion. There is no more important work that we can do in this life and no more valuable gift that we can give than our fully awakened and compassionate self, liberated by our holy idea. I hope the Contemplate This podcast contributes in whatever small or large ways to sharing that compassion with the world and especially with those who need it the most. Until next time, may you be well, may you be at peace, and may you find support as you struggle to awaken to your true essence, your holy idea. Mm-hmm.